The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 17th. Today, why things are getting more expensive, sorting out your personal finances, and this year's graduation speeches. So, Rachel Siegel, you cover the Federal Reserve and the economy, and it feels like we started doing this thing where we have these check-ins where we talk about inflation and how worried everyone is about inflation. But it seems like everyone is, in fact, really worried about inflation right now. You're right. We are back talking about inflation. And a lot of people are talking about inflation. A lot of people are very worried about inflation. Uh Hopefully I can break down some of the near-term concerns, some of the longer-term concerns, and where that might leave us in between, since the Federal Reserve is saying it's going to take some time and patience to figure out where this debate lands. So when we talk about inflation, my understanding is that we're basically talking about things getting more expensive, which seems like it's happening. Because I remember last summer, you know, I could get a rental car for super cheap. Now rental car prices are absurd. Hotels, flights, like all those things are going up in price really fast. And I think that I'm not the only person who is worried about that. You are definitely not the only person who is worried about that. And you're absolutely right. Those are things that, especially compared to the early days and the early months of the pandemic, have become a lot more expensive. And you're also right that inflation is just a way of describing things becoming more expensive. But what's important is to sort of contextualize why things are becoming more expensive now. So you mentioned rental cars. Last year, you know, people weren't traveling as much. People were not booking hotel rooms and they were not flying on airplanes. And that caused prices to really plummet. A lot of rental car fleets, you know, they sold their fleets. There weren't people making reservations and they didn't need all those cars sitting in parking lots. Now we're in a situation where things are better. People are vaccinated. They're traveling again. They're eager to spend again if they have the means to. And that is really throwing sort of traditional understandings of supply and demand out of whack. And that causes rental car prices to go up when rental car companies don't have a lot of cars sitting around and airlines have to revamp you know, their, their flight schedules. And that's all gonna take some time to normalize. The question is, are prices going to stay high? Are they going to simmer back down? How long is that all going to take? And those are the questions that the Federal Reserve is sifting through really day by day. And what is their sense of the answer to those questions? And what are they saying now about how inflation might look in the future? Of course, these projections do not represent a committee decision or plan. And no one knows with any certainty where the economy will be a couple of years from now. So yesterday, the Federal Reserve released a new set of economic projections for the year that said that inflation this year could climb to 3.4 percent, which is is high, just to put it in context. It is higher than the Fed's 
2% annual target and, you know, drew a lot of attention from people wondering whether or not that was going to stick. It's important to say that the Fed also had projections for what inflation was going to look like in the years to come. And that was much closer to their 2% target. So the fact that they're thinking about a world where inflation is 3.4% in the next year, I mean, is that a problem? It is a problem in the sense that the Fed does not want prices to climb out of control and stay there. It's a problem if your budget is tight and higher rent or higher groceries or anything else is hard to absorb and to swallow. What I'll say, though, is that the Fed says that there is not a long-term reason to worry. They say this is temporary and a feature of an economy finding its way after, you know, plummeting last year when the pandemic effectively shut everything down. We think that the economy is recovering from a deep hole, uh, an unusual uh, hole, actually, because it's to do with, uh, with shutting down the economy. It turns out it's a heck of a lot easier to create demand than it is to, you know, to bring supply back up to snuff. That's happening all over the world. There's no reason to think that that process will last indefinitely. They say they're going to need time and data to see how this all shakes out. I think we have to be humble about our ability to understand the data. It's not a time to try to reach hard conclusions about the labor market, about inflation, about the path of policy. We need to see more data. We need to be a little bit patient. But that... There are examples of, you know, supply and demand slowly starting to recalibrate as the economy finds its way back to something looking like normal. Uh, the, for example, the experience with uh, with lumber prices is, is illustrative of this. The thought is that um, prices like that that have moved up really quickly because of the uh, shortages and bottlenecks and the like, they should stop going up. And at some point, they, they in some cases, should actually go down. And we did see that in the case of lumber. But not to be too skeptical or to push back too much against the Fed, but it does seem like these wide swings that, there were, that we're seeing in the economy where things were so bad so recently and getting so, so much better so quickly to the point that it's becoming a problem. I mean, I, I'm kind of I don't know if there is enough precedent of that happening before that I really trust the Fed in saying like, oh, we have everything under control because it seems like the situation right now truly is unprecedented. You're right. And and I think the Fed acknowledges that. I mean, even yesterday during his press conference, the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said that this was unprecedented and that there wasn't a template to be able to sort of say, well, you know, the last time we were in a pandemic that shut down the economy, this is how we handled it. This is uh, an extraordinarily unusual time. And we, we really don't have a template or, or uh any experience of of a situation like this. And ever since the beginning, when the economy was effectively shut down, any sort of playbook has just been not just thrown out the window, but kind of like the pages of that playbook were then ripped out and like sent up into the air in a tornado that sent them spinning around everywhere. It's really hard to see through. There's like the Fed playbook going around in circles and then like cows and random like pickup trucks and they're all swirling right. in, in the air. Right. And that's a real challenge if you're, you know, an economist or policymaker trying to see through that at the same time that you're trying to get the labor market back to full strength. We've got 7 million people whose jobs haven't come back yet. That is also a problem that the Federal Reserve is trying to work through. So the part of their message is, yes, inflation is climbing. It's going to take time for this all to settle. But there's something you know more long term that we have to look towards. But if this continues to be a problem and inflation continues to increase, like what can the government do to kind of put the brakes on that? 
the Federal Reserve's main tool to control inflation is interest rates, which it can raise or lower depending on what it's seeing happening in the economy. And and what does that actually do? Lower interest rates, right now they're super low, makes borrowing cheaper, makes investment cheaper, makes it easier to access credit if you're in a position to be able to do so. Higher interest rates makes it all harder, makes it all a little bit more expensive. It's sort of like a gas pedal. They can juice the economy or they can step on the brakes a little bit. And interest rates are the main tool with which they do that. At the very beginning of the pandemic, the Fed slashed interest rates and brought them super low to near zero so that the economy would have basically as much help as possible. It would make it easy for people to be able to get credit, to get loans, keep those channels open when the economy was really suffering. The Fed has said that it's going to keep interest rates really low so that the labor market has time to heal. But as inflation picks up, they have to be mindful about when they decide to step in and pump the brakes a little bit. And yesterday was the first time we got an inclination that the Fed expects that that might happen sometime in 2023, which is sooner than they thought previously because inflation is on the rise. And by then, the labor market might have time to fill the holes that are still there. I think it's clear, and I am confident that we are on a path to a very strong labor market, a labor market that that shows low unemployment, high participation, rising wages for people across the spectrum. I mean, I I think that's that's shown in our projections. It's shown in outside projections. And if you look through the current time frame and think one and two years out, we're going to be looking at a very, very strong labor market. But there are a lot of Republicans who argue, in particular, that the Fed is going to be behind the curve once it eventually decides to raise interest rates. Once it decides that inflation has climbed too high, it's effectively going to be too late and that prices will have climbed and maybe they'll stay there. And that this sort of game of timing that the Fed really has to get right, they will have missed the mark on. So then if there are those concerns, why does the Fed still think that they have the situation under control? The core of the Fed's argument is that this rise in prices is temporary. I can point to certain examples that the Fed, for example, looks to. So lumber prices over the last couple of months climbed really, really, really high. You had demand for new houses and construction, but there weren't necessarily workers to help, you know, staff those projects and the supply chains were really backlogged. But already we're starting to see prices for lumber slowly start to tick down. That hasn't really happened for used cars yet. Used car prices are going up because of sort of a perfect storm of very strong demand and limited supply. Uh, It's going up at just an amazing annual rate. Uh, But we do think that it makes sense that that would stop and that, in fact, it would reverse over time. So we think we'll be seeing some of that. When will we be seeing it? We're not sure. And there are lots of other pockets of the economy that we're going to have to study. But the Fed's answer is basically, with time, the economy, all these different supply chains, holes in the labor market, will have time to heal and recalibrate. That's their bet. And it'll be up to us to see whether or not that actually ends up happening. So then where does this all leave me? (laughs) Not to be too (laughs) self-centered in all of this, but I mean, like, what am I supposed to, like, should I be worried? Should I be saving more because things are about to get much more expensive that I might need to tap into savings to pay for the stuff that I would usually buy? So your question is actually 
it really gets to the heart of one of the things the Fed is worried about. A lot of the sort of psychology around inflation has to do with what people expect in the future. They worry that if people think that prices are going to soar really high and stay there, that that will change their spending patterns, make them think differently about spending versus saving, that businesses won't be able to map up their own costs, that you know wages will sort of be thrown out of whack. So there's this whole other real psychology around inflation that is distinct from what you might actually be seeing at the checkout counter. And that is also part of this long-term game that the Fed has to get right. And, and what is your advice here? My advice gets to something that I'm also doing a little bit of soul searching on as a Fed reporter. And that has to do with sort of holding two things at once. It's, you know, the Federal Reserve's argument that this is going to take time and patience with what is happening right now, which is higher prices being felt by many Americans. And I think the way my colleagues put it on the econ team at the Washington Post was was really spot on. They basically described it as a yellow traffic light situation. People are on alert, but it's not quite time yet, at least the Fed says, to panic or to slam on the brakes. Rachel Siegel covers the Federal Reserve for the Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. As more and more people in the U.S. are vaccinated and things are starting to open up, there are suddenly a lot more ways to spend money. Producer Ariel Plotnick had some questions for our personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary, about how to adjust your budget accordingly. What's happening now with the economy opening up and people able to spend where they weren't before? There's a lot of pent-up demand. And some uh, experts say there's going to be a lot of revenge spending. So in other words, people are like, I hate that pandemic that it just shut everything down for me. And so now I'm just going to go out and do all the things I couldn't do for the last year. Have you heard from readers who are struggling to reincorporate these expenses back into their budget? I have heard from quite a few readers who are on the spectrum in different ways. So there are people who the pandemic gave them an opportunity to save for the first time because they weren't going out to eat and had canceled vacation plans. And there were obviously people who've lost their jobs or their income dropped. And so now that things are opening up and they're going back to work, they still have a lot of financial issues because they may be behind in their rent or their mortgage. And so now they're playing catch up. So as other people are going out to eat and having fun, they're looking around thinking, I still can't do that because I dug a hole for myself through no fault of my own because of a job loss. And so it seems like what you're saying is if people are experiencing that, they're not alone, that this is normal and they are not the only person. Yeah, if right now you can't have FOBO or the uh, fear of missing out, if you've lost your job or your income decreased because of the pandemic and you're looking around seeing the happy faces of people going out to restaurants, you may feel like, what did I do wrong? 
You did nothing wrong. You know, we had an unprecedented economic issue happen and you can't do what they're doing. I know we've all been locked in and locked down and you want to get out. You want to do things, but you can't. If you had to use your credit card for things that you would have never used before, like your rent or food. Um, And it's it's a hard uh, sell, really, when you uh, can't get out and do things with folks, uh, but you have to be patient and only spend what you can afford. There will be a time when you can do what your friends are doing, but not now. So no matter what your financial situation is, Michelle offered some advice for how to reassess now that things are opening back up. So tip number one, if you went into the pandemic having financial trouble and you were spending You know, let's be honest, a little recklessly. The pandemic gave you an opportunity to put a pause in that and able to either hopefully save or pay down debt or do both. You got to stay on that track. But if you were working and you already had your emergency fund and you, you know, come uh, piled up some money, sure, it's fine for you to go out and do some things if your finances are in order. How can people go about readjusting their budget for a post-pandemic world? Do you recommend people go back and look at their pre-pandemic budget and sort of model their spending habits on that? Or should we take a fresh look at our budgets and reassess or adjust what our priorities are? I always recommend people look at their budgets before they do uh, significant spending. And your budget is not something that you just do and forget, you know, set it and forget it. It is a living document that you revisit constantly. So during this year, hopefully you looked at your budget and you might have had to make some cuts anyway. The cuts were forced on you. So now that the the cuts are not forced, you're back to work or things are opening up. This is a perfect time to do a couple of things. First, I always say start with your net worth statement. I know most people have never done a net worth statement. They don't know what they're worth. So basically, that all that is, is you're going to look at your assets. You're going to look at your liabilities. So assets are the things that you own. Liabilities are things that you owe. And so you're going to look at that and subtract your liabilities from your assets. And you'll come up with your net worth. And if you're not happy with that net worth, that's a good indication that the next step, looking at your budget, there's some things that you need to cut. And you need to cut some things because you want to decrease your liabilities. You want to decrease your debts. And then if you have debts, next you want to list all of your debts. I suggest the smallest to the largest and attack the little debts first. That'll give you motivation to continue on your debt plan. And so once you've done that, then you can look around and say, well, I love that I've got a really good net worth. I don't really have that much debt, if no debt at all, except for maybe my my mortgage. So I can now schedule that vacation that I postponed before the pandemic. But you got to follow those steps. Most people spend with their feelings first and not the financial facts. I need you to look at the facts and not your feelings. And that's so hard. I recognize that. I'm with you. I want to just get out there and do all the things that I couldn't do before. But I always look at my budget first to make sure that I'm doing what I can afford. You know, from our conversation, it seems like a real way to handle your finances successfully 
is through a sort of radical honesty. Like, this is the situation I'm in. This is the money I bring in. These are the things that I need versus these are the things that I want. And I'm wondering, do you think that radical honesty about money will stick around? I do believe that the pandemic forced people to be radically honest with themselves when it came to their money. Don't go back to being blissfully ignorant of what your finances are, were like. You gotta be radical about this. And, and that's what I hope that people will bring from the pandemic, that they'll remember that they didn't have the cushion that could have carried them when they lost their job or their hours were cut. Or maybe you didn't lose your job, but the people around you did, family and friends, and they needed help and you couldn't provide it, even though you might have had the resources had you saved more. And so I always tell people that in every storm, there's a lesson. And in this storm, this was the lesson that there were many people who could have afforded to build a better, for the lack of a better term, a storm shelter for themselves. So you got to be honest with yourself now that things are opening up, you know, don't just rush out there. And, you know, make up for all the lost time. I need you to make up for all the lost things that you should have been doing in terms of saving and paying down debt. Michelle Singletary is a personal finance columnist at The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. If you want more finance tips, check out Michelle's new book. It's called What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits. We will put a link where you can find it in today's show notes and at postreports.com. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now one more thing from reporter Hannah Knowles about the power of this year's graduation speeches. Now, it's my privilege to introduce our class speaker, Breda Tedda. Britta Tedda just graduated from high school in Massachusetts, from Fitchburg High School, and she was elected by her class to give a speech at graduation 
and really in her speech, I think, spoke to the word she used was the resilience of her class. I think she has certainly demonstrated resilience as well. Her family immigrated from Ghana, and she's just this amazing person who has won admission to Harvard. She's also been like working at the grocery store throughout the pandemic. So just a really incredible uh, student. And she was given her school's General Excellence Award. The General Excellence Prizes are awarded at Fitchburg High School's graduation to one senior boy and one senior girl who have outstanding academic achievements and made the most of themselves while making major contributions to the educational and co-curricular programs at the high school. That award comes along with a $40,000 scholarship. This award is a $10,000 annual scholarship. The award is renewable annually for four years of undergraduate college ed education. I am so very grateful for this. But, you know, 10 minutes after accepting this award, she comes back up to the stage and no one expects her to do this. Um, I think everyone's a little bit confused. And she says that um, she wants it to go to someone else. I am not the one who needs this the most. And knowing my mom went to community college and how much that was helpful, I would be so very grateful if administration would consider giving the General Excellence Scholarship to someone who's going to the community college. There's definitely a long history of uh, students choosing to use this platform they have at graduation. The other speech that got a lot of attention online this year was from a valedictorian at a high school in Texas. Her name is Paxton Smith. And she originally was going to have her speech be about something else, but current events kind of led her to make her speech about abortion rights. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. You know, so many people will tell me, like, this is a more activist generation. They're increasingly, like, going to protests and they have strong opinions and the word that's used sometimes is like urgency. I think for these students, they feel like, no, like this is the moment, this is the time where I've captured your attention and I'm going to use it. Hannah Knowles is a reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. that's it for today's Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Lena Muhammad. One of the very cool things about being the host of a podcast like Post Reports is that sometimes I get to meet or hear from listeners who love our show and just find it a valuable part of their day and part of their life. And they say that they have changed their mind about issues because of what they hear on the podcast or that something that they heard is insightful for how they understand the news. 
When I hear that from people, one of the things I always tell them is that the best thing you can do to support our journalism is subscribe to The Washington Post. Right now, our listeners can get a year of unlimited access to everything we publish for just $29. That is less than a dollar a week. You can find the link for that deal in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 